Trauma Code to New York City, Trauma Code to WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an adult and child psychiatrist. Welcome to Trauma Code. Together we will focus on healing of mind, body, and community from trauma. We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on WBAI. Welcome back to Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald on a recording uh, with a, a guest, a uh, endowed professor of history at Louisiana Tech University, um, Drew McKevitt. Um, I think it's the John D. Winters Endowed uh, uh, Chair or whatever it is. How are you doing? Welcome. Thank you for joining us. I'm doing well, Simon. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for that. Thank you for that introduction that makes me sound much more oppressive than I really am. Well, you know what? I'm, I'm going to pick on you for a little bit because I spent a little <laughs> bit of time in Louisiana. And I have to admit, when I invited you onto the show, I thought you were a raging Cajun. Um, oh, but- <laughs> no, man. You know, you know, it's it's good to hear your voice because I'm, I'm actually from uh, I'm from North Jersey or Originally, so I was I was born in Bayonne. Family's from Jersey City. I grew up I grew up uh, basically on the Jersey Shore. But no, I'm not a Louisianian. And, and this show will be on WBAI broadcast out of Brooklyn. Um, but no, of course I uh, forget the university that's out of Lafayette, Louisiana. That is the Raging Cajuns. But you from Louisiana Tech in Ruston, Louisiana, Northern Louisiana. I think you guys are bullfrogs. Is that right? <laughs> Bulldogs, 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 yeah. That's, bulldogs, that's funny. I misremembered. Anyway, <laughs> we're the bulldogs. Yeah, that's in Ruston, Louisiana. I live in Shreveport, which is um, Louisiana's third largest city. It's about an hour west of Ruston. We're about we're about fifteen minutes from the Texas border. Excellent. And I invited you on the show to talk about um, your most recent book. You're a professor of history, and you've just re- re- uh, written a book published by, I think, the University of North Carolina, um, their academic press, um, that is called Gun Country, Gun Capitalism, Culture, and Control. Uh, is that about right? Uh, yeah, in Cold War America. There's a lot of alliteration in there, like the, the hard seas are all following up on each other. Yeah. Um, well, I have to admit, my interest in uh, your research is particularly on the gun country and the gun capitalism, and I think the rest is just kind of secondary to that. But um, you, any, first of all, anything you want to say to us before we get into what you've written, uh, for example, why you chose on, to take on this topic uh, in the way that you did? Yeah, it's it's a big question, and it's it, I, I could spend an hour answering it, but I won't do that. Um, there's there's two parts to it. One is that when I first moved here to Louisiana, I was writing a my first book, which had nothing to do with guns. I'm not trained as a gun historian. Most people aren't trained as a gun historian, and that's that's part of the problem. Uh, but I came across this this case you probably noticed in the introduction of a 16 year old Japanese exchange student. His name's Yoshi Hatori. He was shot to death in Baton Rouge in 1992 uh, in a clear act of of 
violent injustice by a white man who who uh, answered the door armed with a gun, uh, and that that white man gets acquitted of manslaughter, and uh, uh, there's outrage in Japan, and that really sort of interested me as somebody who studies basically international relations, uh, and then secondarily after after that. Um, uh, after discovering that case, I, I became interested in kind of post-war gun history by meaning the, since 1945. And weirdly enough, there just isn't all that much about the United States and guns from a historical perspective since since 1945. We know lots of stuff about the 18th century, about colonial America, about revolutionary America, about the 19th century, the Wild West, and so forth. Uh, but we know very little about about ni- since 1945. Um, and uh, that, that uh, drew me in this project uh, and it, it, it made me read you know a lot of um, public health work and a lot of work by sociologists and so forth who I think uh, typically cross paths more with uh, the kind of topics you you cover on the show yeah indeed and um, it, it is interesting how after reading your book the case of uh, Yoshihiro Hattori if I pronounce that correctly um, uh-huh. it resonated with me as the reader and I was vaguely aware of it that happened in 1992 I think so I would have been about mm-hmm. 10 years old at the time um, I'm not even sure I was aware of it uh, in, in contemporaneous terms um, but in addition to being you know kind of Japan and that was uh, sort of in vogue at the moment because I was sort of kind of at the height of the perceived Japanese industrial power um, right. but also if we look at, at the at the shooter um, is very much kind of a prototype for a kind of – correct me if, if you disagree, but a sort of a Fox News, Newsmax kind of ideal consumer. Um, do you think there's there's any truth to that, any sort of uh, an archetype of uh, a modern American um, symbol of armed belligerence? Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly it. And I think that's that's what drew me into the project and drew me into writing something bigger just from that Yoshi story. So when I initially found that Yoshi story, I thought, you know, maybe I write an article about this. It's kind of an interesting story from a historical perspective and an international relations perspective. Most people don't know anything about it. You know, I was I was 12 when it happened. And so uh, and I grew up in New Jersey and and I didn't know about it. But but people in Louisiana do remember it. And so I I didn't know I didn't know if there was going to be all that much there. Uh, but I think you're right. When you look at the shooter, when you look at his kind of fears, when you look at, at, at the, the media environment, atmosphere in which he lived, in which uh, fears of, in particular, black violence uh, had been increasing in the early 1990s, he lives... The shooter lives on the uh, outskirts of Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge is a majority black city. Baton Rouge is suffering from all of the effects of the drug war and deindustrialization and de facto segregation in the South. Uh, and uh, uh, crime rates are rising in the late 80s and the early 90s, violent crime rates in particular. And so he's he's being fed into that. Uh, that media is being fed into him. And, and it makes him, you know, I don't want to use the word paranoid. Annoyed, but but other people did at the time who knew him, uh, who said like he was he was always on the lookout for people breaking into his garage. Uh, his wife, uh, in particular, she would never go outside at night. Um, she was always kind of spooked by people at the door when it was dark. Uh, and so I think uh, yeah, there's there's kind of an archetype there, and 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 in, and and in terms of the guns and thinking about the guns as totems that can protect you from uh, all of these 
these fears that lurk in the night. Um, and, uh, you know, he had, he was, he owned five guns. We knew that at that particular incident. And when his wife, what happens is, uh, uh Yoshi and uh, his friend knock at the door. His wife answers. She sees Yoshi. This is, in fact, this is, um, uh, 31 years ago yesterday or the day before you. Yesterday, yes. uh, this would be October seventeenth, and um, uh, she answers the door, and Yoshi's dressed up in a Halloween costume, and she she sees a young Asian kid dressed in a Halloween costume. She screams, she slams the door, and the first thing she says to her husband is, "Get the gun!" And what he does is he immediately rushes to the bedroom. Uh, in the closet, he's got a uh, forty-four Magnum Smith and Wesson revolver, which he grabs and then goes outside. He goes to the carport door. Uh, carports are all over the south. And and uh, he confronts the um, he confronts Yoshi there in the in the driveway and and shoots and kills Yoshi, and I think uh, you know that that idea that the gun is the answer to this moment of insecurity um, is uh, yeah it's telling about what the kind of gun country we already were by 1992 and I think maybe we are more so today. Mm. And and uh, and and, you, and you've dropped just a lot that right there to think about um, and in um, appreciation for the work you did in in publishing you know this book when you look at it um, I guess you know you've already named some famous American uh, arms manufacturers Smith and Wesson obviously um, Connecticut and New England having a historic um, you know firearm production history and in a way that that's tied to the revolution and, and captured in some way in the Second Amendment um, you, you kind of follow a more recent history and a more recent um, understanding of the Second Amendment of and the place of firearms in America and you in start at least in your in your book it besides the the anecdote that you just mentioned from 1992 with post-war uh, surplus firearms from Europe and how a market was created to liquidate and sell them in the United States and that is kind of the way you explain the way I understood it at least was kind of a birth or rebirth of modern American gun capitalism um, what, what else would you like to say about that time? Is that a fair assessment that I made? And anything else that you would add um, in, in thinking about that post-war American gun culture that, that you're writing about? Yeah, I think you got it right. And so, you know, we, we, it, it, we can't say that gun capitalism begins in 1945 because we know there are gun capitalists in the 19th century. There's the Samuel Colts, there's the Oliver Winchesters, right? These figures whose names become synonymous with gun manufacturing, with gun capitalism in the United States. And, you know, and in part what's so good about what, what someone like Samuel Colt is so good at is not necessarily making guns, but marketing guns. He's, he's first and foremost a capitalist who knows that you can make something good, but you've got to be able to sell it. Uh, and he's really good at selling it. And so to me, what happens in the post-war era is, you know, like you said, it's it's kind of a rebirth of that capitalism. There's, it's a new era of gun capitalism that emerges in the post-war era. And it's defined not so much by those iconic names we think of, like Colt and Smith and & Wesson and so forth, uh, but instead by, it's by cheap guns. Cheap guns make America, the post-war gun market in the United States. And I argue that cheap guns are the origins of the gun market 
we have in the United States today. Again, we think about you know the iconic gun makers in in America today. More often, when you go to a gun shop, you're going to see firearms made by manufacturers you might not have heard of. In part because they make guns cheaper, uh, they take advantage of cheaper materials, they take advantage of imports, imported materials, imported parts, and so forth. Um, because cheapness wins in the market. And the way cheapness won after World War II is that a handful of, of new gun capitalists, kind of the Samuel cults of the post-war era, they go over to Europe and they... They find that there are millions of firearms sitting in warehouses in Europe. These are firearms that have been used on battlefields in the Second World War, uh, in Germany, in Italy, in, in um, uh, Great Britain even. And they buy up as many of these firearms as they can because they know the governments want to get rid of them, right? These governments, by and large, have laws that prevent widespread uh, civilian ownership of firearms. So these gun capitalists know that they can get them off these these uh, governments quite easily. Uh, and in many cases, they're buying them for as cheap as a dollar a gun or even less. And uh, the most famous of these gun capitalists, the guy I talk about the most in the first couple chapters, his name is Sam Cummings, Samuel Cummings. Uh, he builds the world's largest private arms company. It's called InterArms. It's based in Alexandria, Virginia, right across the river uh, from Washington, D.C. It's right on the waterfront there in Alexandria. Um, uh, today, those are all like beautiful townhomes that I'd never be able to afford. But the, the 50, 60 years ago, there were warehouses filled with hundreds of thousands of firearms. And he fills those warehouses with cheap guns from Europe. These are used guns, war surplus guns. They are uh, uh, Mausers, uh, which is a, a, a German military rifle design from the late 19th century. The Mausers kind of like the AR-15 of its time uh, because it, it the design spreads all across the world. And so you could get a Mauser that was manufactured in Argentina, in Spain, in Finland, uh, in Sweden, in Germany, in Italy. Well, Italy had its own version of that kind of gun, which is the Carcano. Uh, Carcano becomes most infamous for Americans in the shooting of uh, President Kennedy in 1963. And so these are the kinds of cheap guns, I argue. This is what makes makes the gun market after World War II. They're so cheap that it's easy to meet demand uh, among American gun um, uh, American gun consumers who otherwise might not want to buy a new brand new rifle from an American manufacturer that would run them. 120, 150 dollars brand new. That's in you know 1955 dollars, but instead we'll buy a cheap war surplus rifle for 10 bucks. Samuel Cummings would would sort of boast that it's the kind of gun that was so cheap that after you bagged your first deer, you could leave it out in the woods. Uh, and so it, it, to me, that that cheapness, that that idea of flooding the market with as many cheap guns as you can, uh, that's a new kind of gun capitalism. In contrast to the 19th century gun capitalism. For focused on like sort of the quality of a handful of brands in the post-1945 America. It's all about cheapness. And that's how we get 450 million or however many guns we have in the United States today. And, you know, that there's an interesting history that that you've laid out and, and you know, you start talking about the rifle and uh, even in the um, the character of Oswald, right? He also had a, a second gun. You talk about a handgun, mm -hmm. and after the rise of those um, imported rifles, 
um, correct me if I'm wrong, is the rise of, of the cheap handgun as well in the United States. And that, as we've kind of alluded to, um, correlated, and correct me if I'm wrong, with the rise of um, armed violence, uh, violent crime in the United States in the 60s. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. That's right. And so... Uh, you know, initially we'll grab a lot of attention in, in Congress when we get the first kind of movement to do something about firearms uh, is uh, those imported rifles. Um, and, of course, that's going to draw a lot of attention after uh, Oswald uses one of those rifles, an Italian uh, Manlicher Carcano, to uh, uh, allegedly kill Kennedy. That's not a debate I want to get into today. Uh, but uh, Oswald's also carrying a second firearm. It's a it's a handgun. It's a it, it is a Smith & Wesson. It's a uh, Smith and Wesson 38 revolver. The the barrel has been uh, sawed down to a, a short two inch barrel, uh, and he buys it from a distributor. Uh, called Seaport Traders. They're based in California that had imported it from Europe. It too was a war surplus weapon. Uh, and so the handguns, especially as uh, gun violence rates start to climb in the 1960s uh, and the sale of handguns boom in the 1960s because rifles and, and shotguns, long guns, in general, outsold handguns through the 1950s. In the 1960s, handgun sales uh, dramatically spike. Much of that is driven, uh, at least in terms of the market, by the availability of, of cheap handguns. So some of these are, like Oswald's, uh, cheap imported um, Smith & Wesson that had been manufactured in the United States that had probably made its way over to Europe during either the First or the Second World War and then came back to the United States because it's the only market where you can really sell these things in the world uh, or at least make a dollar doing it. Uh, but a lot of these guns were cheaply manufactured in Europe after the Second World War. So as, as Europeans realize that Americans will buy all of these cheap guns that they can hand them, as surplus, uh, you start to see manufacturers in Europe pop up, like cheap manufacturers building cheap factories to use essentially what is pot metal, uh, scrap metal left over from the Second World War to make cheap handguns for Americans. Uh, eventually, by the late 1960s, they'll get this term Saturday Night Special. That's what they're often called. Uh, but many of these are made in factories, primarily in West Germany. In fact, it's, there's sort of a, an incredible story about how Congressional investigators are trying to figure out where all these guns are coming from. Uh, and they have like all of these brand names that they've never heard of. Just weird sort of brand names that get stamped on these really cheap handguns that people are buying for 10 or $20. And eventually, it's not until 1968 that a presidential commission tracks it all down to like one factory in West Germany. Uh, it was called RG Industries or Rome. Um, Rome Industries, R-O-H-M. And they were making these handguns and selling them to uh, uh, making them on behalf of a, a handful of distributors in the United States. And they are flooding the market in, by the late 1960s because they know as a consequence of uh, urban violence, as a consequence of black uprisings like Detroit and Newark and so forth, uh, white populations are eager to, eager to arm themselves. And uh, Europe's ready there to provide such that by 1968, at least one in every three guns in the United States purchased is is an import, and they're cheap imports, and they drive down the price of guns and open up that market. 
Right. And and you've just given us a lot to think about, including kind of the racial dynamic that played into the shooting of uh, Yoshihiro that you talked about in the beginning. Um, but also you're touching on um, elements of the Cold War. And, and right, I think students of international relations like yourself uh, will be aware of how uh, Kalishnikov's uh, from the Soviet Union influence international kind of um, uh relations and 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 violence and, and and firearms and of course the u.s also was a source of um of such kind of firearms it's, itself uh in on the international phase but also that cold war um imagery and, and that and that influence really in your analysis played into the rise of of gun capitalism in america do you want to talk about that anymore before getting into some uh, other issues yeah, so you know what's what's fascinating is that we often think about when people talk about the United States and guns and international relations during the Cold War, for very good reason they think of the American distribution of firearms around the world, and there's no doubt that lots of that happened. Uh, in fact, there are official government policies like the Mutual uh, Security Act of 1954, in which it's it is U.S. government policy to send firearms to various and other weapon systems. Um, to various uh, Cold War allies around the world. Um, and uh, uh, those guns end up in places like, for instance, uh, Guatemala in 1954, where a right-wing uh, coup overthrows the democratically elected government of Guatemala. Um, and so American gun policy, when it comes to arming our allies around the world, uh, has a real political impact in places around the world throughout the Cold War. Uh, but if you think about it on a terms in terms of scale, the number of guns that an insurgency in, say, Guatemala would need to overthrow a democratically elected government, it sort of tops off in the low tens of thousands. I think the, the number there, and I, I might be off a little bit, but I think the number there was around eight or 10,000 guns that went to Guatemala. Now, on the other hand, if you look at how many guns were coming into the United States as opposed to going out of the United States. It's a number in the hundreds of thousands per year and probably somewhere in the neighborhood of five to eight million uh, over the course of a decade from the 1950s into the 1960s. And those guns remake American gun culture as much as our exported guns affect politics uh, around the world. And, you know, it actually becomes official U.S. government policy to allow those guns to come into the United States because it's in 1958, Congress is trying to figure out how some of these guns are coming in. Some of them are, are U.S.-made guns. There's, there's one case of, of tens of thousands of Springfield rifles that appear to be imported from Italy, and the government wants to know how, how why are these guns coming here to the United States? Not so much because they're worried about violence, but they're worried about they're being pressured uh, by the gun companies because of economic competition, right? When you when you import a cheap we'd call it today pre-owned rifle, then that gun might might cut off a gun, uh, the sale of a new gun from a company like or Remington or something like that. And so Congress wants to know what's going on. Uh, and they, they, they hear from the State Department. The State Department says, it is our policy that it is better off for those guns to come into the United States to be brought in by 
these essentially these gun capitalists and sold on the U.S. market to American consumers than to go anywhere else around the world where we can't control their use. Essentially, we'd rather American gun owners buy up those tens of thousands of rifles and use them for home protection, for hunting, for whatever they might use them for, rather than they go to Southeast Asia or they go to North Africa or they go to Central America or they go to some other Cold War hotspot where they might fall into the hands of uh, of American uh, of people who are perceived to be American enemies, in particular communist movements around the world. And so there's this really fascinating connection about between the Cold War and not just the guns we send overseas, but also the guns that that come home. Hmm. Wow. And, you know, I do really quickly want to get into um, the present moment. Um, But, you know, people that people that are you're in my age will remember that there was, um, you know, a a strong government regulation of firearms right in 1994, um, a control on uh, what we would call assault rifles. And we know there's a history of controlling, for example, machine guns in one way or another since the kind of uh, Al Capone figures of that prohibition era. Uh, but just mm-hmm. just to get us up to speed, you know, what is the history of kind of uh, gun control, gun re- regulation and, and community movements to control the accessibility of firearms to prevent um, violence in the communities? Yeah, it's a good question because the two aren't always historically connected. So, you know, there's a thread of, uh, well, well, you know, guns are controlled at, at many different levels in the United States. They're controlled federally, they're controlled at the state level, and depending on the state, they can even be controlled at the, the municipal or, or the local level. And so there's a, the, the history of controlling guns at the federal level it goes back to the 1930s. As you mentioned, it's that wave of sort of gangland crime in the, the late 1920s, early 1930s that provokes the first wave of federal action on guns and we get in the 1930s during the new deal we get the the national firearms act and the federal firearms act and they're both trying to control like who can buy a gun and what kinds of guns can they buy and as you mentioned that's that's when machine guns they don't become illegal but they become so prohibitively expensive to own through taxation and registration that most people are not going to buy and own a machine gun. It only becomes later that Congress essentially makes it illegal to to purchase a machine gun, uh, or at least a newly manufactured one. And so there's these various waves of, of federal regulation. 1968 is another really important moment, the Gun Control Act. That, too, coming at a moment where Americans are attuned to greater levels of violence. And so uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson signs that into law in 1968. Then the next, it's not until uh, a quarter century later that we get another wave of federal action. First in the Brady Bill. Uh, so that's that comes in 1993. That's the bill that uh, requires a, a waiting period and uh, automatic uh, background checks uh, that eventually become automated and, and digitized uh, for purchasing a handgun. And then, of course, we get the, the assault weapons ban of 1994. Uh, which essentially bans a number of sort of cosmetic characteristics uh, of of uh, of certain kinds of semi-automatic rifles, in addition to 
um, uh, magazine capacities over 10, I think was the number. Uh, but that expires in 2004. And when that expires, that's, that's where we can trace sort of the AR-15 culture of today is to that moment in 2004. But then, as you said, there's, there's these other levels as well. And so it's, it's not really until the late 1960s, early 1970s that we begin to get community action, uh, intended to address gun violence in particular. And, you know, the, these community groups are forming because community groups are forming around a whole bunch of sort of crisis issues in the 1960s, whether it be police brutality, whether it be something that's seemingly disconnected as an environmental uh, pollution and so forth. Uh, and so we get the first community movements in the early 1970s. And uh, in the book, I trace a couple of them in Chicago, sort of the two um, precursors of today's uh, really national gun control movement. One of them founded by a woman named Laura Fermi, who uh, people might know because she was married to a man named Enrico Fermi. And Enrico Fermi was the guy who cracked the atom uh, at the University of Chicago in 1952 or 1942 uh, and had uh, contributed so much to the Manhattan Project. Wow. Uh, after Enrico dies in 1954, she has this sort of second life as an activist. And among her, the causes she takes up is gun violence in her own community. She lives in Chicago, a city like so many cities of its size, plagued by gun violence in the United States. And uh, she's going to found a, a small local organization that eventually becomes, it evolves into uh, the Brady campaign of today, the, the big kind of national um, uh, gun control organization with tens of millions of dollars a year in, in budget. Uh, she's the founder of that organization. And uh, that organization, you will never see her name mentioned anywhere in any of the documents of her as the founder of it. But without her, that organization wouldn't have existed. Uh, and then I'm also interested in another group of women in Chicago who were, they took more of a kind of consumer approach, which is to say that they went after, uh, they tried to ban bullets as things that could be purchased. And they, they uh, used the consumer new Consumer Products Safety Commission to try to do that. Uh, and they, they petitioned the commission and somehow a judge allowed the petition to go through. And so we had this moment in 1974 of a few months where the commission was taking up the possibility of banning handgun bullets, uh, which never really went through and Congress finally stepped in. But to me, that was kind of an interesting tack. Like, how do we get at the NRA when Congress seemingly refused refuses to do anything about it. Uh, how do we get at the gun manufacturers when in the wake of the 1968 Gun Control Act, gun violence continue to go up, gun ownership continue to go up? Uh, how can we sort of work around Congress's inability to act? And uh, going after them from a kind of consumer angle, I thought was really sort of fascinating and unique. And, you know, you just brought up the rise of the AR-15 after end, the end of the assault weapons ban. Um, and obviously, uh, you know, you know the data better than I do probably, but handguns account for most of the injuries and deaths um, related to firearm um, violence and injuries in the United States. Um, but there's a way that the AR-15 represents a new moment in gun violence in the U.S., um, particularly with regards to mass shootings, right? It's it's the basically the firearm of choice of mass murderers in the United States. Um, so what can you tell us about that, the rise of the AR-15 in American life and culture? 
Yeah, so it, it really does trace to that moment in 2004. And th- there's a few things happening in 2004. So one of them is the expiration of the uh, assault weapons ban, uh, which allows now gun manufacturers to flood the market uh, with these kinds of firearms. And, you know, we say the AR-15, the AR-15 is is trademarked by, by Colts. And so um, there are lots, but there are tons of AR knockoffs, right? It's very similar to, you know, 100 years earlier when there were, uh, there was a specific Mauser, but then there were lots of different kinds of Mausers that were essentially knocked off uh, in many different countries. Uh, and so the, the AR-15 really takes off after that moment in 2004. A couple other things happening are in 2005, we get um, the, uh, 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 <laughs> I always forget, the acronym is some, sometimes people call it PLACA. It's the oh, Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, uh, which essentially gives gun manufacturers uh, a clean slate when it comes to lawsuits about uh, that that laws, um, uh, people trying to sue gun manufacturers for their guns essentially working as attended. So there had been there had been lawsuits against gun manufacturers back to in the 70s and 80s, most of which were about their guns uh, not working as intended. That is, they were manufacturing cheap canned guns that were just as likely to injure you, the shooter, as they were to injure the person you were shooting at. Um, and so there were a whole bunch of lawsuits like that that put a bunch of companies out of business in the 1980s. Um, but now Congress steps in in 2005. This is the Bush administration, a Republican Congress and uh, basically gives the gun manufacturers license to make the, the firearms that are as, as lethal as they can get away with under various U.S. laws and regulations. Um, and then, you know, couple that with what's going on around the world in, in the aftermath of the September 11th attacks. The United States is waging war in 2004 in Iraq, in Afghanistan. Uh, we know there are special operations happening all over the world. And that uh, begins to get mirrored in our popular culture. And, and, you know, there's the sort of valorization of warrior culture, of connecting manhood and masculinity to these firearms that were essentially designed um, for uh, military um, uh, military situations that are essentially combat weapons with slight modifications for the consumer market. Uh, an AR-15 is not all that different from the M-16 that U.S. troops were carrying into, carrying in Iraq and, and Afghanistan in 2004, uh, and so that you know that all combines to sort of kick off uh, a real incredible growth period for for the AR-15. And you're right, like we still know today, it's it, you know given depending on the year, it could be anywhere from 80 to 90 percent uh, of gun deaths in the United States are uh, a consequence of handguns. Um, and that's, you know, that's also in part because two thirds of gun deaths in the United States in any given year are suicides. Uh, right. And so if you think about sort of the mechanics of it, a handgun is more practical when somebody wants to take their life. Um, uh, uh, but nevertheless, uh, we the AR-15 becomes a symbol of these mass uh, killings in, in part because the AR-15 is based on designs for maximizing the the injury and death among uh, uh, on a battlefield or in a kind of combat situation, right? And so, if if your goal is to harm or kill as many people as as you can in a short period of time, the AR-15 is a really effective tool for doing that. Um, and there have been 
uh, you know, no restrictions on the ability of companies to manufacture and market those things in the last 20 years. You know, of course, President Biden supports some kind of new assault weapons ban, though I just don't know if uh, politically the Democratic Party even has the stomach to try and push something like that through Congress, even if they controlled Congress, which they no longer do. Um, so, yeah, I think we're in a we're in a tough spot when it comes to the AR-15. And, and interesting, you bring up um, gun legislation, and obviously, in considering that in the last at least generation or two in the United States, um, you have to consider the power and influence of, you know, the gun lobby, particularly the NRA, the National Rifle Association, which is a little bit interesting at this time because it's, you know, in the last couple of years, it's basically come out that uh, their leadership was a bunch of grifters, right, who was basically <laughs> stealing the whole time. Um, and, and just really shows there's a lot of bad faith actors in that um, field. But what, what, you know, tell me if I'm being unfair, but what else would you say about um, the modern NRA and the modern kind of Second Amendment within American politics and life? Yeah, so you know, I think one one um, there, there's good reason why people often equate the NRA and the quote unquote gun lobby because you know no more money goes into the NRA and has gone into the NRA over the last fifty years than any other gun rights organization, but. I also think it would be I also think it's it's a mistake to assume that the NRA is representative of uh, gun culture and the gun rights movement more more generally. You know, you often hear particularly people on kind of the gun control side of the argument say the NRA doesn't represent all gun owners. You know, the NRA is about five million members and we have, you know, anywhere from 80 to 100 million gun owners in the United States. And when they say that, what they what they're really saying is that most gun owners are, in fact, more. Uh, they're more they're more uh, amenable to regulation and so on and so forth, which I, I think is probably true. But also what what comes out of that statement is there there's a movement in there's a gun rights movement that is even further to the right of the NRA that for well before the last few years, when all this corruption and, and grifting came to light, uh, was always skeptical of the NRA uh, and saw it as sort of like an insider in Washington, part of the establishment an organization that was willing to compromise just to maintain its maintain its power and its connections to uh, its connections to political power and that kind of thinking goes all the way back it goes back to ni- the 1960s because in the wake of Kennedy's killing and the rise of uh, gun violence rates in the 1960s, Congress is debating what eventually becomes the 1968 Gun Control Act. They're debating that for years, and they're working with the NRA to do that. NRA lobbyists, leaders are working with congressional leaders throughout the 1960s to craft a gun control law that will be acceptable to the NRA. And there's a segment of the gun rights movement that sees that as entirely unacceptable. These are, I write about them in the book, uh, these are a whole bunch of kind of grassroots gun rights groups, uh, grassroots gun rights groups that are further to the right of the NRA. They're associated with a lot of the right-wing anti-communist groups of the Cold War era, so groups like the John Birch Society, uh, but they even tend to be more more radical. And they see any kind of acknowledgement of gun regulations as a sort of slippery slope toward tyranny. Uh, And so you mix their kind of 
commitment to gun owner, which is like supercharged by the consumer market of the era that allows them to buy all of these guns with so few restrictions, uh, especially former weapons of war from Europe. And you mix that with kind of Cold War hysteria and you get this sort of rock solid right wing group committed to uh, uh, the, the um, uh, complete and total absolute defense of gun ownership with zero restrictions. And that's when really that that interpretation of the Second Amendment really emerges at that moment. The Second Amendment is sort of a fascinating thing historically uh, for about 170 years of U.S. history. Americans just didn't care all that much about the Second Amendment. They didn't think about it all that much, and they certainly did not equate it with their gun rights. Um, but at this moment in the 1960s, that interpretation starts to emerge. And it comes out of that moment where guns are so plentiful and cheap, and now Congress is talking about restricting them, and that moment where you have this right-wing movement that is convinced that communists are trying to subvert the government, that uh, um, uh, uh, that uh, black uprisings are tied to, are inspired by by the Soviet Union or the Cuban communists or whatever, and that Americans need to be armed to defend the country. Um, that's when that interpretation of the the Second Amendment as a a virtually unlimited right of the individual to own a firearm emerges. And so it's tied up in this post-war era. It's not the interpretation or the understanding of the Second Amendment from 1791. Um, Historians are very clear about that. Legal scholars who want to bring cases to the Supreme Court to expand gun rights, they would disagree with that. Uh, But that's because they read historical documents in a very particular, narrow way to prove their point rather than trying to understand understand those documents in context. Um, and so that's that's the Second Amendment we live with today. It's a Second Amendment invented in the 1960s and 19, pushed forward by gun rights groups in the 1970s, including eventually um, the NRA, who, who adopts a lot of the talking points of these these right wing groups. Uh, and it's the one we live with today that, you know, I, I don't I, I don't think it's going anywhere. I don't know how. Um, uh, especially with the Supreme Court we have today, um, which is only interested in further advancing gun rights, first having done so um, in the 2008 Heller case, and then more recently in last year the Bruin case. Um, uh, that's that 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 Second Amendment has become now enshrined in American life when it didn't exist in the 19th and through the much through much of the 20th century. Yeah. And, you know, before we move on from the topic, there was a way in which, um, you know, uh, in Australia, a very prominent uh, gun culture uh, met the rise of, of, you know, the the same processes you were talking about, uh, um, including mass shootings with um, assault rifles, was quickly met with an assault rifle ban and buyback programs to get um, surplus um, kind of AR-15 type of gun out of civilian hands. What else, is it just the Second Amendment? What else is different about the United States compared to Australia um, in that moment and since then, vis-a-vis firearm availability? Yeah, it's a really good question because, you know, a similar thing happens in, in Great Britain. Both of, this, both of these happen in the mid-1990s. There are uh, uh, horrific massacres and the governments act to limit the availability of guns. And even in the case of Australia, there is a gun buyback. 
But yes, one is the, the Second Amendment that is uh, different because nothing like it exists in Australia and Great Britain. But I would argue that the more important factor is simply the the scale, the quantity of gun ownership in the United States as opposed to either Great Britain or Australia. Great Britain, I if, if I'm not mistaken, the number of guns bought back by the government was in the hundreds of thousands, maybe five or six hundred thousand. Uh, in the United States, we're talking about a stockpile in excess of 400 million. And so, you know, it's not just in our time that people thought about this. So the first uh, uh, federal commission and report on gun violence in the United States, it's produced in 1968. Lyndon Johnson appoints this commission in the wake of, of Bobby Kennedy's shooting. First, MLK is, is shot and killed in, in April of 1968. Then Bobby Kennedy is shot and killed in, in June of 1968. And uh, there's nothing Lyndon Johnson loved more than appointing commissions. And in this case, he appoints a commission to investigate um, uh, violence in American life, violence in American history. And one of the, the aspects of that report is that there's a task force appointed to investigate guns in American life. And it's the first time the federal government ha- really studies guns in American life in any kind of systematic way. And they they first conclu- they, they, they just try to, just counting guns is a complicated thing, right? Because there's no gun registry in the United States. By 1986, it becomes illegal for the federal government to create any kind of gun registry. But there is no way of counting guns in the United States. They try to get data from manufacturers, from importers, from the uh, the Census Bureau that that counts imports and so forth. And so as best they can tell in 1968, uh, there's probably something like 90 million guns in the United States. That's their guess, uh, 90 million guns. And they say about 25 million of them are handguns. And they say the handguns are the real problem. Uh, by and large, that 10 or 20 percent of deaths a year from rifles or shotguns. Yes, we'd like to see that reduced, but if we can do something about the 80% of gun deaths a year as a consequence of handguns, then we do really do something to uh, reduce uh, gun violence in the United States. But the problem is, what do you do in a country of 25 million handguns? Can you confiscate 25 million handguns? Uh, they said doing so would be the most dramatic act of private property confiscation that perhaps any liberal democracy had ever gone through. Um, but they said now is the time to act, because if we don't act now in 1968 to do something about 25 million tools of violence in the hands of civilians, we're going to be looking 50 years down the road and there's going to be 250 million tools of violence in the hand of civilians. And, uh, of course, nobody acts in 1968. Uh, they, they issue their report. It actually comes out under Nixon. Nixon just uh, just puts it in a puts it up on the shelf isn't bothered isn't interested in any of those conclusions and um you know they were right here we are now almost 60 years later and um uh, we're a country of 450 million guns and we didn't act in that moment and you know what they said was if we don't act now it's probably too late and they said that in 1968 and uh certainly by the time australia and great britain were passing much more restrictive uh gun ownership laws Certainly by that point, it was too late, um, both because of the number of guns and also because of the way that that political sensibility, that political identity of gun owner was became so embedded in American culture. Wow. And um, 
you know, you've given us a lot to think about how uh, the gun capitalism and gun culture in the U.S. affected firearm availability and, vi and violence in this country. But what I've been really more and more appreciating is how the, um, you know, uh, gun capitalism, not just on the military side, but just on the civilian side with AR-15s and similar weapons um, that are being marketed uh, basically to organize crime outside of the United States, whether or not they're marketing, they're certainly being sold to them, particularly in Mexico. It's pretty well understood that, you know, sh shipments of, of, of automatic, you know, uh, weapons, AR-15s are being sent down from Texas. Um, but there's good data out of Haiti as well, where the gangs have basically taken over Port-au-Prince from the collapse of the government, that something like 80% of the firearms there are from the United States, largely shipped from Florida on, on, um, uh, on you know, in container ships, perhaps some of them also through the Dominican Republic. Um, but, but what else can you say about how the uh, gun capitalism in the United States has affected firearm violence outside of the United States in our present time? Yeah, you're right. So, you know, what this points to is is one of the, the great problems that gun that critics of gun culture and gun capital capitalism have always noted, which is that uh, the the state, whether it be literally a state like New York or or Louisiana or the the a national government like the federal government in the United States is an is an insufficient container for weapons uh, and tools of violence like firearms, um, which is to say that if you if if you have a legitimate gun market um, particularly one on the scale of the United States there is simply no way to build a wall around a state or around the country to prevent guns from leaking out right and so we've we've long known this for in Chicago for instance going back to the 1970s the ATF was doing studies showing that most of the guns being at least the ones being recovered in crimes in Chicago they were not purchased in Chicago, in part because Chicago had very restrictive laws about who could purchase guns, and even Illinois in general. Something like one-third of the guns uh, found on crime scenes uh, by the Chicago police in the early 1970s was coming from Mississippi, right? And so we, we know that that problem exists in, in New York and in the Northeast today, that so many of the guns come down this so-called iron pipeline. It's essentially I-95, right, which runs down to South Carolina and Georgia and Florida, where it's much easier for somebody to go and buy uh, a whole bunch of guns and then bring them up to the Northeast, where it's much harder for people to purchase those guns. And that kind of phenomenon works on an international level, too. Because nations are and states are never as uh, hermetically sealed as they want to, they want you to believe they are, right? So just like people and ideas and goods cross borders easily, so do guns. Uh, and so Mexico's gun crisis is an American gun crisis because Mexico has some gun ownership laws. It allows for gun ownership, but it's much more restrictive than the United States, and it has tried to uh, uh, be more restrictive over the last couple decades as it is dealing with uh, um, uh, cartel violence and so on and so forth. And so it, it only makes sense that these guns were going to flow, leak out of the United States into the, the various nations of the Western Hemisphere, Brazil as well, although Brazil has much, um, uh, much more lenient gun control uh, or gun ownership laws than the United States. Uh, Brazil is, is by pure numbers, has the highest number of gun deaths in the world each year. Uh, and so um, uh, it, it only makes sense 
sense that the nation state will not be a, a suitable container for for holding in guns, which which are, you know, by and large, even the, the, the something like an AR-15 is easy to conceal when you're moving across international borders. Um, and so it's it's very much, a, you know, it's a, it's it's something Americans are dealing with their own gun crisis at home. How do we deal with uh, the consequences of this overseas? We, we tend not to pay, but we historically haven't paid much attention to how our own uh, social and, and economic policies affect other countries. So I'm, I'm not not too confident we're going to do anything about that anytime soon. Mm. Well, well, as you know, we're bumping up against the end of our time. Anything else that you want to say about uh, this gun country and gun capitalism? Um, uh, you know, in, in thinking about the, the book you've just put out that we haven't talked about yet. Um. Yeah. No. You know the the the, the thing that really drove me in, in writing the book I w- the way I did was was that that issue of of pure numbers of thinking about guns as as material things. Right there, we often think about them as these kind of totemic magical items. In part because like groups like the NRA want you to think about like every gun connects you to the past and it, it's part of your American identity and it it links you to the the revolutionary era and the Minutemen and the Wild West and so forth and so they, they've built this gun mystique up and what I think that mystique does and, and even when gun control groups treat guns in that way is it makes it hard for us to see guns as simple material consumer goods right obviously they're, they're in a particular special category because of the dangers they pose but they're also they're like refrigerators and they're like automobiles and they're like toasters they are things people buy and things that are marketed to people and i think um you know one step among the many steps that that different groups try to take to confront this problem is to simply treat them more uh uh, more so as as simple consumer goods as material goods as a material problem as much as they might be a kind of broader cultural and political problem hmm. well and uh f- for anybody who's just joining us i'm here with uh on trauma code with uh drew mckevitt a professor at uh, louisiana uh tech university um and uh his book that he j- has just been talking about is gun country uh gun capitalism culture and control uh, in the united states uh or rather in the cold war uh right correct me uh um, in Cold War America, yeah, it's, a, it's an <laughs> academic subtitle. They're always so long, and so yeah. <laughs> well, I, I I enjoyed it particularly. I think the story that we start off with of uh, Yoshihiro Hattori is a very um, interesting kind of window into the problematic gun culture and gun capitalism in the United States. Um, but so first of all, I would want to any one of my listeners, I would want to recommend if you're interested in this topic, uh, it's a good read. This gun country book that we've been talking about from. University of North Carolina Press Uh, but I do want to give you Drew an opportunity any other um, work of art or book or music or performance that you would want to share with our audience that they might not be exposed to otherwise you know, this is gonna uh, this is gonna sound like such a um, college professor recommendation, uh, but I recently reread because I haven't read it in at least twenty years. But I recently reread *Crime and Punishment* by Fyodor Dostoevsky, <laughs> uh, the classic work of Russian literature. Right? I mean, it's such a college professor thing to do, and I teach classes on Russian history too. How many too, pages and is that book? I don't remember. Is it it's uh, it's about six or seven hundred pages. Yeah, but you know, there's I a recent. It. I don't think I ever finished it. <laughs> I, mean, I think it's. 
it's it's like one, at least on that list of like books everyone has started but nobody finished. But there's a recent translation by a um, translator named Michael Katz. Uh, Michael Katz? Yeah, I think it's Michael Katz. Uh, just done within the last few years, which makes it much more readable and feel more a little more modern than 19th century. And you know, just as someone who's thinking about you know these issues of crime and the particularly the psychology of quote unquote criminals and these kinds of things. And and Dostoevsky himself is this kind of figure who was like very much on the left and becoming more and more kind of conservative crotchety as he gets older and this is where he's working out all these issues if <laughs> if anyone has time for a you know a 600 700 page russian 19th century novel i would i would strongly recommend it well thank you drew for joining us uh uh, this has been Drew McKevitt of the uh, recent book Gun Country, Gun Capitalism, Culture and Control in Cold War America. Thank you for joining us on the Trauma Code. I look forward to uh, reading more from you. Thanks, Simon. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Very good. I'm going.